This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Over the weekend, Kathleen Wynne contended that she won't be the next premier in Ontario and urged voters to ensure that a a minority government happens in Ontario. Uh, And and I don't know, just it's a weird kind of strategy. And uh, it's odd for uh, a premier, I guess, uh, a little less than a week out to admit that they're going down. Let's bring in Christopher Waddell, professor, School of Journalism and Communication, Carl... Carleton University. Before we get to him, here's what Kathleen Wynne had to say about this. Here in Ontario, we live in the very best place in the world. I love this province. I love its people. And even if I won't be leading this province as premier, I care deeply about how it will be led. It's hard because I know, I know there are liberals who believe in us and believe in what we've been doing and what they are doing and some of them are going to be mad you know they're going to be saying Kathleen why are you doing this why are you saying this some of them are just going to be sad voters are going to pick a new premier but they are generally worried about giving that person whether it's Doug Ford whether it's the conservatives whether it's the NDP too much power They're worried about giving them too much of a free hand because they're concerned about what that might mean for our economy and for our future. Wow. That's painful to listen to, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Holy smokes. Where was all that love when she was jacking our electricity rates through the roof? You know, she talks about uh, that what's really important here is that we don't give either one of these sides too much rain. So despite what she's done to us, the the fact that she's hoofed us when we're down, uh, now she still wants to regain power. She still wants to have some semblance of power. So it won't be a a majority government for any of them. And she actually called them radicals. I don't know. I think there's a lot of people that would say that Kathleen Wynne has been radical. There would be a lot of people that would say Kathleen Wynne has constantly taken this party further and further and further and further and further to the left that she has become the people that she's talking about. And I'm sure there's lots out there that think their electricity bill is quite radical. It's a, a very bizarre stance. Let's bring in Christopher Waddell, professor, School of Journalism and Communication, Carleton University, and is on the line with us now. Christopher, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. So what are your thoughts on what Kathleen uh, Wynne had to say over the weekend? Well, it's, it's quite surprising, obviously, is the reaction we've seen. Um, it was tried in, in, by the New Democrats in, in, two, in, I think, about 2001 in British Columbia, a similar sort of thing. Didn't work very well there. I think what what she may be trying to do, and I don't, but I'm not sure the message was delivered all that well, was to suggest that um, if you have a strong liberal candidate in your riding, or maybe a liberal member of the legislature at the moment, you can vote for them, knowing that um, we're not going to form a government, but that we will, if you vote for them, and we bring back enough of our liberal um, MPPs, we'll have a strong group in opposition, and if the numbers all fall the right way, we may be the uh, hold the balance of power between the New Democrats and the, and the Conservatives. Um, that's a pretty convoluted argument to try to make in the last few days of an election campaign, um, but it may be a way that, that, that Ms. Wynne or the party thought that they could uh, provide some support to to members who are, who are uh, quite frankly, in a situation where um, in a lot of elections, people who are the in, in the incumbent who hold the seat at the moment have a natural advantage as they've been in front of the public for the previous four years. And uh, But every once in a while, there's a tidal wave, and uh, and people decide they want change. And it doesn't matter who you are, how successful you've been, how long you've been there, how well your name is known, you're going to get sucked out with the tide, and you're going to be replaced by someone else. And she may be trying to prevent that, but I'm not sure that for the... Uh, that sounds like a pretty sophisticated argument to make for the average voter when they're thinking about what to do on June 7th. That's exactly my thinking. Um, you know, if people were thinking with, uh, on voting for her, then they would be in the running. Now she's basically saying, vote for us not to put me back in the premier's chair, but to make sure that the other two, whichever one does get in, has a minority government. How does that resonate with voters? Well, good question. I mean, the other thing they may be trying to do is that that under the rules of the of the legislative assembly, if you if you only have if you have less than eight seats, you're not an official party. 
And if you and uh, so, for instance, if the Greens were to elect one member, as something may happen in Guelph with uh, with their leader, um, they would have a seat in the legislature, but they don't get the benefits of being an official party. And that's important because that gives you money to hire researchers. It gives you money to do a variety of other things. It could be the Liberals are worried that if things get bad enough in the last week, they may slip below eight seats, in which case they would lose an awful lot in addition to government. They'd lose a lot of the things they require to maintain a strong presence and a, a strong uh, um, visible presence in front of the public. And and also, if you run an election campaign and you spend a whole lot of money and you do very poorly, it may be hard to get people to give you the money to cover the loans that you've undoubtedly taken out to run the campaign. So there's a whole bunch of issues there playing underneath the surface. But it's but as you suggest, it's difficult to explain that to someone who's just seeing Ms. Wynne basically say, I'm not going to win and you should probably vote for us still, which seems a little incongruent. How, what would the discussion about this been like in those back offices? I mean, how do they arrive at this conclusion? <laughs> how, would you, how would you like to have been a fly on the wall at that meeting? Well, it would be interesting because on some levels it, it kind of feels like, well, we've run out of everything else we can do. So why don't we try this? And and um, it may be it, it, their campaign, the Liberal campaign, I think is, has has been uh, has had trouble delivering a, a consistent message from start to finish about what they've done and about why why they did what they did and why it's important for voters to continue to allow them to do the things they've been doing. Um, and whether you agree with them or not, um, you can. They can make an argument and, and outline a rationale for why they've done what they've done. They haven't done that particularly well in the campaign, and, and this seems to be, to some degree, an extension of that in terms of an inability to get a clear message across. And it does kind of feel like we've got a week to go and we've kind of run out of everything. And it, not to polls are not always accurate completely. Um, maybe as important is looking and seeing what the candidates are doing, particularly in the last week of the campaign. And we've seen Ms. Wynne going to ridings that if they thought they were doing well, they would be winning easily, but instead she's in them to try to support the liberals that are there. So it could be that they were seeing the floor drop out of their of their support in their own internal polling, and they thought, we don't have any other good ideas, so why don't we try this? And sort of, you know, as Bob Dylan says, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And, <laughs> and 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 they may fail that. I don't know. I'm not there, but it would be interesting. It, it, afterwards, I'm sure the people involved in the campaign will, one way or another, want to explain why they've done what they've done, particularly if if uh, if they do very poorly and fall below eight seats. If you're a candidate, how you're reacting to this? If you're a liberal candidate. Probably not very well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I'm not sure what went on inside the party, whether in fact the party was, party candidates were told about this in advance and, ex- and given a rationale for why it was being done. But um, but if you were just there and, and your workers were all there getting ready for a Saturday canvas, your last Saturday going out and trying your best to... Uh, to engage voters and persuade people why it was important to vote for you, it, it kind of knocks the stuffing out of you, I think. Unless, unless you can actually provide a really good and succinct rationale for why you're doing it. So when the voters exact, ask exactly the same questions you're asking, um, the candidates and the candidates' canvassers and supporters are able to say, here's why we did it, blah, 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 and this is because we want you to do this. But that doesn't really seem to be clear, and that leaves them kind of scratching their heads in a similar way we kind of are. Why wouldn't she announce that she would step down after the next election? I think that's kind of a given. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I mean, at this point, I think it's kind of a given. In fact, I think within the Liberal Party, there has been over the last year or two, as as opinion polling tended to suggest people have wanted to change for quite a while, and and uh, when you're leading into a period coming into an election and polling suggests that people want to change, there's two things that you can change. You can change your leader or voters can change the party in power. And I think some liberals are thinking retrospectively now, despite their admiration or support for Ms. Wynne, maybe they should have been more ruthless and tried to push to change a leader before uh, before the election. Of course, when things like that happen, then you can get unexpected developments. And we've seen what happens when the conservatives are forced to change leaders. That creates another degree of uncertainty and chaos. So so it's kind of been a pretty extraordinary time, all told, I'd say. Do you think voters will look at this as a selfish act? 
Her, her, her saying, you know, I, I know you're not going to vote for me, uh, you know, to, to win the premiership, but let's stop them from getting that, and, and I'll still be empowered to make sure that you're okay. You know, I think I, 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 it, perhaps, but I think as much as anything, what the campaign has demonstrated is that uh, many voters appear to not be paying much attention to Ms. Wynne because they've decided that they want a change. And if you look at, again, the research that's been done in the period leading up to the campaign, the numbers suggested that upwards of 80% of people being surveyed suggested it was time for a change. Uh, and if the numbers are that high, in, in 2015, federally throughout the campaign, um, the, the is it time for a change question generated support of about two-thirds of voters. And we saw what happened to Mr. Har- Harper in that campaign. The the issue for the voters who want change is always what's the change do you want do you want it do you want Mr Ford or do you want Ms Horvath and and the the polling evidence again and, and a lot of the evidence and results of recent elections suggest that the group of Liberal voters and NDP voters is a larger share is is larger than the number of Conservative voters out there and uh, so in fact when you want to change amongst Liberal and New Democrats the question becomes. Who do you vote for if you don't if you don't want the conservatives? And just as in 2015, we saw that people ultimately decided they would vote for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. In this campaign, it looked like people were making the decision that the NDP were the people to vote for, and Ms. Wynne's statements on Saturday really just solidified that. So, so the risk they're playing is that in fact it drives more people to the New Democrats, and they end up in in in. Um, a very precarious situation afterwards, but we'll have to see on Thursday what actually happens. Or could it be the opposite, where she's handing Doug Ford a victory by dividing up the left vote? Well, well, I, I, again, that's really difficult. I, who knows? I mean, I think one of the big, really unpredictable things is that that the turnout in the last two elections in Ontario in, in 2011 was 48 percent of eligible voters, and in 2014 it rose to 51 percent. That's still you know, one percentage point more than half the eligible voters. If if that were turnout were to go up to sixty or sixty five percent, I think who knows what's going to happen. Um, but it would be. But no one can predict who those people are going to be. Although a lot of people speculate that it would be younger voters and people who who um, who who for whatever reason weren't engaged previously, and and that adds a degree of unpredictability. So you don't really know where they're going to go, and you don't really know what's going to happen as a result. So that that makes it very. Um, it'll be an interesting evening on Thursday night. Uh, people don't usually request change if change is not needed. They would rather stay with the status quo, and most don't like to change. So do the liberals realize what they did wrong here? Do they, do they get it? I mean, and I'll point to the the other example to the United States with, you know, after the presidential election down there, it seems the Democrats are still spending all of this time trying to throw mud at the opponent as opposed to understanding why they still picked that guy ahead of theirs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the United States, there's still, there's still a percentage of the of the electorate and of the Democrats who think that somehow... Um, some uh, evil force or something persuaded people to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, in the in, in this case, I think one of the big things you've seen written about in the in the media coverage of the campaign that no one has given a particularly good answer to, I don't think, is why has it appeared for so long that people hate Kathleen Wynne so much? And 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 I think it's pretty clear that a lot of people don't like her. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if. Why do you it. think that is, though? I mean, I don't, kinda, know, I don't know the answer myself. I wouldn't I, be surprised because I trace this all back to the electricity file. To me, that's when this all became unraveled. I think she was arrogant towards voters and despite yeah. and refused to listen to what experts had to say. And, and we've got you know another report that came out from Global News this week that said the exact same thing over and yeah. above the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Office. So can, can they sit there and just say, well, they just want to change? To me, that's a cop out. If you're just saying you lost or will lose the election because people want to change, you're missing the point. Yeah, but what's interesting to me is that that I think the Liberals could have mounted a more coherent defense for what they've done over the last few years than perhaps they have. Um, were that to be a defense that argued about things that looked at the minimum wage, that looked at the prescription drug issue, and looked at some other sorts of things, and made the cases about the fact that the nature of work has changed quite dramatically in the last few years, um, the protections that many workers used to have from employers who offered them benefits in their in their um, as part of their employment package is disappearing as more and more people move to contract work or even less secure work than contract work. Young people have. Uh, 
have found it much more difficult to find jobs. People who are coming out of educational institutions are finding that they're un- underemployed for their skills in a lot of cases. A- and pension plans are different than they used to be before. We've moved from defined benefit to defined contribution, which passes the risk onto the employee rather than the employer. And you could make an argument, now whether you agree with it or not, it's another thing, is that the things that the Wynn government has done in terms of prescription drugs, minimum wage, other sorts of things, are designed to provide a degree of safety net that that work used to provide that doesn't provide anymore. And if you want to, so so if if society doesn't do that, will society end up paying the cost in terms of homelessness, welfare, other things, things like that? Now, and again, you can argue whether that's a good argument or a bad argument. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But it strikes me as being a more coherent explanation for what they've done than, in fact, they've been able to mount during the campaign. But But again, you may be right. The electricity issue for some people, um, is is an issue that that um, that may have set people's minds off and 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 above and beyond that any government that's in power for 15 years you know in, in Ontario the Conservatives lasted for 43 and then they were uh, tossed out in in 1980 well tossed out by the Liberals and NDP in a minority when they defeated the government after the 85 election and since then we've gone a little bit back and forth but but the overall tenure of governments tends to be shorter we even saw that in Alberta with um with Rachel Notley so um so 15 years you're probably fighting an uphill battle regardless of everything else that's going on Christopher Waddell has been with us, Professor School of Journalism and Communication, Carleton University. Christopher, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A private member's bill has been tabled with the goal of decriminalizing the act of paying surrogates in Canada to give birth. Canadian parents want to do more to help surrogates who carry their kids. To talk more about all of this, Francoise Bayless is with us, Canada Research Chair in Bioethics and Philosophy, Professor at Dalhousie University, and with us now. Francoise, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So what does the law say now in regard to surrogate parenting? So the law in Canada is very clear and explicit. It says that it is illegal to pay a woman to be a surrogate, and it's also illegal for a person to be paid to act as an intermediary, in other words, a broker, putting together intended parents and surrogates. So really clear, those kinds of payments are outlawed. However, our country, unlike some other countries, does not prohibit surrogacy. In fact, it permits what we call altruistic surrogacy, which means that you can pay, reimburse the woman for all out-of-pocket expenses. And so I think that's an important thing to appreciate. So uh, how many, how big an industry is this? How many surrogates are we talking about? Because it, it appears that this is going on, but it's going on under the table. So we have numbers that are provided to us by the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society, and the last year for which they provided numbers was 2016, and at that point there were just over 600 cycles where the woman was registered as a surrogate. Hmm. Now, here's a really important thing to appreciate, though, which is 600 cycles over a population that at that time would have been approximately 36 million. Hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is that there's lots of suggestions, well, we should just be like the United States. Well, in the United States, in the same time frame uh, that I'm able to, to get you know, robust numbers, but these numbers actually don't come from physicians or clinicians. They actually come from the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control in the United States. They have it pegged at just under 5,000 cycles in the United States, but that's a country that at that time was 320 million. So the reason I'm giving you all these numbers is to be able to make this one point. We have an altruistic system. They have a hodgepodge system. Percentage-wise, we have the exact same number of surrogacy cycles. So our system is working just as well in terms of you know, the ability to use this particular way of family making. So what is the law in the United States? How do we compare to other jurisdictions? Well, so in the United States, what you have is a patchwork. So you have a few states that allow legally surrogacy, and one of those states is California. And quite frankly, California is responsible for half of all the surrogacy cycles in the United States. Then you have another small group of states that actually make it explicitly illegal, and the vast majority of the states say nothing one way or the other, and so you don't know what's going to happen there because they don't have a law at all. And in fact, what Mr. Housefather wants is the same kind of patchwork in Canada. 
right now we have a federal system, and the federal system says for all Canadians in this country, this is the law. And he wants the federal government to walk away from that responsibility, allow the provinces to take control, and then I guarantee you will have a hodgepodge. And I don't have to be a great seer to make that guarantee. Mm. All I need to do is look and see what's already happened with respect to payment for blood and plasma. So you are are supporting the system that's already in place then? Absolutely. I think it's fine for us to have an altruistic system. I think that meets the needs of the women who choose to participate in this activity. It meets the needs of intending parents. And you can always say there aren't enough, but that's not unique to surrogacy. There aren't enough organs. And we don't fix that problem by saying, oh my goodness, people are dying on the wait list. Let's set up a market in organs. So if we're not going to do that for people who are at risk of dying, why would we think we would do that in this context? So I'm not persuaded that the statement that, oh, I can't get what I want means I ought to be able to buy it on the open marketplace. That's not how we work in Canada. That's not how our health care system works. Why would we not go there? Why would we uh, make this between the provinces and and the country and the federal government? Why would the federal government not just say, you know, if you if you want to reimburse or you want to uh, charge a fee for this, it's fine. Why would it be left to the provinces and and then create a patchwork system as a result of that? Why doesn't the, the federal government make these changes? Well, right now, the federal government can only exercise its power or authority through the criminal code. And so that's all it can do. So it can either say this Mm. is a legal activity or it's an illegal activity. They don't have that kind of flexibility. That flexibility belongs to the provinces if they choose to govern it as a matter of health care. But in 2010, this whole issue, this constitutional divide of powers, was debated The Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, the federal government has authority to use its criminal law power in this way, and that's what they have chosen to do. So what Mr. Housefather says is, well, I don't want you to exercise this power. This is the only power that you have, so let's just give it up and give it to the provinces and let them do what they want. And and what I was going to say is that right now, Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and B.C. have made it illegal to buy blood and plasma. Right. And so I would expect that if they're not going to let you buy blood and plasma, they're not going to let you buy sperm and eggs. Mm. And, you know, on the other hand, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick allow for payment for plasma and blood. So maybe they would be amongst the the provinces, sorry, that would allow this. And then, you know, my province might do nothing. PEI might do nothing. And I just don't think that's good for anybody. Uh, I think that we're good to have a consistent framework where women are not at risk of coercion or exploitation, where we don't have the commodification of human reproduction, Hmm. and yet we try to help people make loving families. So this really isn't about surrogacy, it's about reimbursement. As far as I'm concerned, that's the contentious issue, because Canada permits altruistic surrogacy. And in fact, compared to other countries that permit altruistic surrogacy that are our comparators, so I'm thinking here of the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, these are places that are just like Canada. They prohibit payment, they allow reimbursement, and we have higher numbers than any of those jurisdictions. So I think we're doing it just fine, and we should leave the legislation alone. We should be making sure that there's clarity around what is a legitimate reimbursable expense. And as need be, we should continue to educate Canadians on the benefits of donating all kinds of body parts in pursuit of different goals and objectives. What's in this for the surrogate if there's no, excuse me, if if it's just repayment of of money spent? I mean, if, if you're just basically covering expenses, what's in this for the surrogate? Well, that's a really interesting and important point. And at the end of the day, what it boils down to is altruism. And one of the things that's really important to remember is there are very few opportunities for altruism in the world, and this is one of them. And you don't have to take it, but it's the same thing with respect to blood, with respect to bone marrow, with respect to organs. And we do have people that make those different donations. We have people that give live liver lobes. We have people that have two kidneys and give one up. Um, There are ways in which we can choose to be kind, caring, and compassionate towards others. And this is just one of those examples. Would we be naive to think that this isn't happening anyway within the system? I think that there is a gray market. I think there's good evidence for that. But I think that that's not the way to go forward, which is to tolerate a gray market. What we need to do is encourage Canadians to know the law and to respect the law. 
But first, we actually have to have Health Canada do the work it needs to do with respect to clarification of the regulations. So the gray market we currently have is a function of uncertainty, and that's not a good thing. We should not have uncertainty. Canadians who want to be law-abiding Canadians should know and understand the law. So uh, the, sur- the, the current system, either way, does need some clarity. Is that what you're saying? The current system requires clear regulations with respect to reimbursement. So Canadians need to know exactly what is and is not reimbursable. And to this point, there has been some confusion. And so that confusion needs to be cleared up. Health Canada is working on that currently. And in fact, we expect to see a draft of those regulations this fall. And so it's kind of surprising that Mr. Housefather is actually undermining the work of his own government right now. What is reimbursable? If, if uh, I'm a surrogate mother, what can I claim? Well, so far we have been given an indication of what would be reimbursable on the website for Health Canada. And as well, the Canadian Standards Association has issued a document. In that context, what they have said and what is also in the legislation is the following. For example, if a woman were to get sick in the context of a surrogate pregnancy such that a medical doctor were to say it's no longer good, safe, appropriate for you to keep working, she would then have her wage reimbursed. So that's a very concrete thing. In addition to that, you know, she might need transportation, she might need child care for her other children, she might need access to food, to pregnancy clothing, etc. And those are the kinds of things that we've seen identified at this point. Are there that many women out there who want to carry someone else's baby just for fun, just for doing something nice? Well, if we assume that the surrogates we have right now are not breaking the law, we know that there's approximately 600 every year. Are we naive to think they're not breaking the law? That I can't speculate about. I would hope that people are not willfully breaking the law, but I can't actually know that. Is it is it wrong to think that you know you're you're comparing the system and how good it it already works compared to other jurisdictions and such but if we really don't have transparency how can we be sure of that because like again this could all be going on under the table and nobody even knows about it Well I think that transparency is a really important thing and one thing that is unfortunate is that the original legislation had an organization called Assisted Human Reproduction Canada and it was in fact supposed to collect all of this data And unfortunately, we don't have that in Canada, and so we have to rely on the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society. But that, in effect, is a professional group of self-interested people. Now, having said that, I think they are doing a very good job of documenting the information. But what we don't have in Canada is an arm's-length organization that would be analogous to what you have in the other countries I referred to. So, for example, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in New Zealand, there are independent bodies that are tracking this information so that we can, in fact, know with confidence who's doing what. So at this point, we really don't audit these uh, cases that clearly, do we, that, that carefully? No, no, that isn't being done in any kind of systematic way except through the Canadian Fertility and Andrology. It Society. almost reminds me like people who are self-employed but filing a tax return. Well, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there is an answer then. Um, how difficult is it? To do this, if you're a couple and you're looking for a surrogate, how difficult is it to make this happen? Well, I'm really not sure how one goes about doing that because I admit that that's not a service that I've been looking for. Having said that, I think that what's important is to find ways in which we can make the current system work well and protect the interests of women who choose to become surrogates. And what I'm worried about is that if you think the way to do that is by putting money on the table, I think you, in fact, make women more at risk of things like coercion and exploitation. Is it a fair comparison to use the examples of paying for blood or plasma? Well, I mean, that's about paying for services that we have previously made a decision ought not to be in the marketplace. And I think that that's in part what's at issue here. But if we want to come at it from another perspective, I think one of the things that I would talk about is that when you put money on the table, you compromise people's freedom in terms of decision making. And we do know this from other jurisdictions where money is being paid. And so, for example, we know of women that are asked to have a cesarean section instead of a vaginal birth. We know of women who are asked to have a termination of pregnancy because they have a child with a genetic uh, 
disorder. We know of women who have been uh, asked to reduce a pregnancy that was for twins or triplets. And these are circumstances where if you're doing something like this in a voluntary way, you're less likely to be persuaded, coerced, paid to do uh, something that you perhaps otherwise prefer not to do. And that's just one kind of example of the ways in which the marketplace um, perhaps constrains people's freedom of choice. So who is really in control of this process? Is it the surrogate mother or the prospective parents? Well, it most certainly should be the surrogate mother. It's her body that she's choosing to use in this way. and that's But it may not, but it's not her baby. I'm sorry? But it would not be her baby. Well, that's a matter to be contested. And the yeah. reason I say that is she's the person who is pregnant. Right. And if she is not involved in the business of baby selling, which is illegal, very mm-hmm. clearly, we call that child trafficking, then she is pregnant. She's the person who gives birth. And in most places, I would expect that she's the one on the birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And then she makes a decision whether or not to have her child be adopted. And that's one of the critical things. Wow. Here. So they so, 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 so that's what the mother has to do is actually sign something that she's giving it away for adoption, even though it's... It's not her egg or sperm? Well, it varies from province to province. So, for example, in some provinces, they will, in fact, do what I consider to be inappropriate, which is they will put the name of the intended mother on the birth certificate as opposed to the person who actually physically gave birth. Mm. So there's a fair number of anomalous things happening. But what I think is really important to appreciate is the argument that people like Mr. Housefather are making is that we should be paying for this labor, and they cannot make the argument that we should be paying for the child, and therefore the child does not belong to anybody, I would think, other than the person who gives birth. Uh, here's an email. Altruism is fine, but in the case of a couple I know, for them, the wait for a suitable surrogate here would have been too long. They spent their money in the United States, Wisconsin, and as a result now have a beautiful baby girl. Well, that's fine. I would like to do all kinds of things that I may not have the money for or have to wait for. And again, I would move to other kinds of examples like access to health care. We have a system in this country which is based on non-payment for health care, and that means we have wait lists. And so I'm prepared to tolerate as a consequence that there would be wait lists. I'm also prepared to tolerate as a consequence that not everybody gets whatever they want and that there is an important thing from a policy perspective to not look at an individual woman or a case, but really to think about what's a policy that you're going to develop for all Canadians. And that policy should focus on the vulnerable, and that's the people who are at risk of coercion and exploitation. Where do you think this is going, Francoise? Well, I hope it's going to go in the direction of supporting the current legislation, which I believe pays appropriate attention to non-commodification of the human body in terms of reproductive capacity. I think that's a really important principle, and I think that that pays attention to the interests of the women and of the children who are born of these technologies. We do know of children who are born through surrogacy who have this sense that they were a commodity, that they were somehow bought and sold. And it makes for a very different birth origin story if you're able to say this was a gift. Hmm. I am a gift. Uh, Do you think this has religious overtones or is it strictly about money? The way I'm hearing the debate play out is about money and it's an interest in being able to access women's bodies. People have not been able to get access through certain means that are legally available to them in Canada and so they want to put money on the table. And I think that that's an important thing for people to think about. This is about getting access to women's bodies. Francoise Bayless has been with us, Canada Researcher Chair in Bioethics and Philosophy, Professor at Dalhousie University. Fascinating. Thank you for the time and discussion. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Early yesterday, three astronauts departed from the International Space Station uh, to return to Earth. And we've had Paul Delaney from York University on many times to talk about all the cool things that go on in space and the technology involved in the International Space Station. And as I'm watching the news last night, I'm thinking, you know, considering the technology that we have and that this thing's floating around and has been for years with people up there for like six months at a time, the way we get them up there and bring them back seems something out of the Apollo days. And, you know, I'm watching them pluck these people out of this capsule and, you know, the, the thing scorched up from, re, from re-entry. And my goodness, it looks like something from a, 
a Disney movie from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or whatever. It just it doesn't seem to match the technology that astronauts are enjoying. And it seems to be still an incredibly, although effective, primitive way to get up and back. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Appreciate this. As always, Scott. Enjoy it. So, again, I'm watching this last night. I'm always fascinating when the space, fascinated when the space stuff comes on, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Another six months has passed. These people are coming back. And then they show you a shot of the capsule. And I'm thinking, this is something out of the 1960s here, Paul. Uh, you know, it just, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised they can even survive all of this. Is it not <laughs> a primitive way to get us up and back from an, an incredibly technological space station? It is. It is a, a throwback to the 60s, as you say. Uh, the Russian Space Federation has taken the attitude for, for decades that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It, it. They get up and they get back with the same tried and true technology. And as a consequence, yeah, it looks like you and I are watching the Apollo era or the Soyuz era from the 60s and the 70s. It works, therefore they're not changing their, uh, their mode of, of transportation, shall we say. But when you think over the last 30 to 40 years, because you and I have both lived through the space shuttle era, that seemed to be the right way to go forward. A reusable spacecraft that landed like an aircraft, it, and by comparison, was absolutely luxurious. It was a floating hotel compared to the Soyuz capsule. And you would have thought that that was sort of on the stepping stone going forward. But shuttle ended in 2011, nothing to replace it, still nothing to replace it. And in fact, the Orion spacecraft, which is the U.S.'s replacement, even the Dragon replacement, still are going to do exactly what you just saw last night with the Soyuz spacecraft. They're going to parachute down, they're going to be blackened and blue. Maybe uh, Dragon will refly again, but it really does look like technology from the 70s. It's odd. I think it's the best way I'm going to say it. Is Is this the safest way to get them up and back? Well, actually, in a way, it probably is the safest way. I mean, you know, we think back to the shuttle era, very technologically challenging vehicle, mm. and as you well recall, we yeah. lost two of them, uh, not in orbit per se, but during the process of going up and or coming back. If you think back over the lifespan of the Soyuz vehicles, the ones that you looked at last night coming down. We haven't lost one of those since 1971 or thereabouts. And we never lost an Apollo capsule. We never lost a Gemini capsule. So in a way, simpler is better. These are very safe vehicles. And, you know, it's relatively small. You, you coat them up with your heat shield. You just make sure it's bottom first coming through the atmosphere. Bob's your uncle. You're at home. <laughs> so in a way, it is the safest way. But it's not necessarily the, uh, the way of the future. How big is this thing? Uh, you and two of your closest friends uh, in a bathroom, uh, a small bathroom. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, it's around about oh, four meters in diameter tops it re- and, and certainly not that high. If you ever look at any of the imagery from inside, the, the cosmonauts, astronauts, they really are crammed in there. Uh, it, it's much tighter, actually, than the Apollo vehicle. The Apollo vehicle, uh, the capsule, was much, more, uh, was much roomier, and the Dragon capsule and the Orion capsule that are being developed are considerably roomier than the Soyuz spacecraft. So very, very tight. You don't want to be in there for any longer than you have to be. And fortunately, after you undock and come down to Earth, it's really only a matter of a few hours. So uh, technologically, this old way is still the best way or still the most practical way to do it. Why not advance it then? Why not make it bigger? Why not make it more comfortable? Or is that money spent for something that isn't needed? I think that's really what it comes down to, money. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the cosmonauts, astronauts are not in this vehicle for very long. It is used as a container, if I can be so crude, to get you up and to bring you back. So its total usable lifetime is only measured in hours. Uh, to develop something that is much larger, uh, more sophisticated, is a lot of money. I mean, these things are sitting on top of tried and true technology, that is to say the rocket boosters that are taking them up, to get them to carry a heavier payload, it's expensive. The more weight you're carrying into orbit, the, the, the more cost you're incurring. The space shuttle only flew into low Earth orbit. As, as much as the space shuttle was a very remarkable vehicle, it really couldn't get more than a few hundred kilometers above the surface of the Earth because it was so heavy, and our rocket uh, boosters were literally poor technology in terms of their capability of lifting that heavier payload. That's why they never did anything more exciting in higher orbits. 
Uh, Russia, not exactly. Well, and, and you may question this, but not exactly. We don't we, we don't think of them exactly as the the cutting edge of technology. Why are they still providing this? Why isn't the U.S. doing this? Oh, isn't that a good question? <laughs> uh, the the short answer to a much longer conversation is that there hasn't been enough foresight and planning for the future from NASA as far as human spaceflight is concerned. And that comes back to money. Uh, you know, we've heard president after president after president charging NASA with doing one thing or another, going back to the moon, going on to Mars. Uh, you know, p- pick your favorite topic. Uh, but they never allocate the funding for it. Uh, NASA's primary budget has really been very, very static for decades. And as a function of the, the GDP of the U.S., it's been going down. Yet the costs to uh, fly astrophysics missions, planetary exploration missions, missions to uh, Earth orbit to monitor the oceans, to monitor the atmosphere, you know, the list goes on that NASA is being charged and asked to maintain, including the International Space Station. It leaves precious little funding available to develop new spacecraft. And that's why they abandoned shuttle in 2011 with no foreseeable plan to get them into orbit anytime soon. They had thought that they would have developed Orion and the Constellation spacecraft uh, sequence by around about 2014, 2015. Well, you know, Obama threw that out the window in and around 2012. NASA went back to the drawing board. They're developing what they call the SLS, uh, Space Launch System, with the Orion spacecraft. It's not going to fly people until at least 2020. Nobody is planning for the future. NASA is hanging on, doing what it does very well, but doesn't have the financial capability to plan a robust future for itself. Are they expecting private industry to fill that void? Well, that's the implication, I think, that you have to draw. When you look at SpaceX, Blue Origins, uh, those are private groups that are really doing wonderful things as far as getting material into not just low Earth orbit, but geostationary orbit. And while none of those new um, uh, rocket boosters are able to get us to Mars yet, you well know, for example, with SpaceX and uh, the Falcon Heavy, it does have the capability of launching significant payload to Mars. Uh, SpaceX is now going very, very well as far as reusable technology is concerned, recovering boosters. I think the implication is that uh, the U.S. wants to you know, downsize NASA or at least not increase the size of NASA and try and have SpaceX, Blue Origins, and those other groups, Orbital ATK, take up the slack and perhaps you know, look after everything about low Earth orbit, maybe even geostationary orbit. That'll leave NASA free to wander out into the solar system. But even there, I don't see a credible plan for NASA getting to Mars with people in yours and I's lifetime. I really don't. So what's this trip like up and back from the International Space Station? Which which part, which journey is more grueling, longer? Give, give us a comparison of the two trips. So, well, but both are a little challenging. Uh, you're talking about pulling G-forces, uh, which are quite significant. That is to say, during the ascent as well as the descent, your body uh, mass, or more to the point, your body weight, feels three, four, five times as much as eight times its regular weight. And that, of course, means you've got to be incredibly fit to be able to breathe and survive those types of mm. uh, endurances. So it is, again, a throwback to the Apollo days, to the 60s and the 70s. The there are significant forces that are put on the human body during the ascent and the descent inside these capsules. In stark contrast, for example, to the space shuttle, where they didn't pull much more than three gravities, that is to say three times your body weight, it was a much more leisurely acceleration into orbit. You might recall John Glenn in the late 1990s flew and he was 77 at that age. Hmm. You don't want to be flying the current vehicles unless you're incredibly fit, and I don't think anybody's flown who's been older than 51. I think uh, Chris Hatfield might hold the record or getting close to holding the record as far as the oldest astronaut cosmonaut to fly in the current era in these vehicles. So you've 
It's grueling. I, I think it's all you can say. It is a grueling affair, but you train for it. Uh, you're well prepped for it. it. As I said earlier, it's not particularly dangerous. I mean, rocket travel is dangerous inherently, mm-hmm. but these vehicles have been doing the same thing for the better part of 50 years, and we haven't lost one since about 1971. So it's a pretty safe way to go up and back, but you've got to be fit to do it. <laughs> so the trip up and back is just as bad. Not One isn't worse than the other. I don't think so. When you listen to the cosmonauts talk about the whole affair, uh, you know, they are different, but equally challenging, shall we say, especially from the point of view of, you know, the forces that are uh, encumbered upon you. On the way up, it's gentle uh, for the first minute or two, but as you begin to get closer and closer to orbit, the force increases on you, and vice versa. When you're leaving orbit, it's fairly calm, but as you're then hitting the atmosphere with the fires of reentry, that's when the G-forces really do build up on you. What do you see out that little wee window? <laughs> Coming back, a lot of fire. Because <laughs> the, the capsule was black. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the heat shield is designed to ablate, to take some of that heat and literally just melt away. Uh, so yeah, it is quite, the descriptions that I have read from the astronauts as they look out the window is, it's a scene from hell. I mean, yeah. you know, you really feel as if you're inside, you know, a huge fireball. And if you could look at it from outside towards the capsule, that's exactly what you see. This flaming meteor. Inside is fine. You know, the climate control is pretty good. Apparently the ride is not all that bad either through the thick atmosphere at that point. But looking out the window, yeah, it's scary. Uh, in contrast, when you're launching, of course, you know, you're sitting on top of this huge bomb of, of material. I mean, you know, millions and millions of tons of fuel that has to be you know, funneled properly. It's a bomb. It's a controlled explosion which is being funneled through your engine. So, you know, that's probably a little scarier in a way. Hmm. How long does it take to re-enter the atmosphere? Uh, from the time they uh, fire their retros and drop their speed sufficiently to fall out of orbit, uh, it's literally measured in tens of minutes. So the moment you start firing those retros to when you're on the ground is sort of like of order half an hour. So it's fairly quick. Uh, you undock from the International Space Station. You, you might hang around in orbit for a couple of hours, depending on what it is you want to do, system preparation, make sure you're lined up with your landing site and so on and so forth. So there can be delays up in orbit, but once you fire your rockets and you're on your way home, you're now measuring it in tens of minutes. How difficult is it for these, you, you talked about the stress on the human body, how difficult is it for these astronauts that have been up there for almost six months? Well, I mean, again, thinking back to um, uh, Hadfield, when uh, Chris came out of the, uh, the capsule after his four months or so in space, it was a challenging time. Most of the folks really are literally carried out of the capsule. Yeah. They're put in big, easy reclining chairs. It's very odd to watch in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it is. You're in the middle of an ice field, a farmer's field. Uh, yes, it is odd in that regard. But uh, the, the, the gravitational influence on the human body is a challenge. And after you've been in space for a long time, you don't have a lot of strength. I mean, yes, they're, they're spending three hours or more of every single day doing uh, you know, physical exertion on treadmills and the like to keep muscle tone high. But the moment you put that 1G force back on your body, it is a challenge. Some of them handle it better than others, and they, they sort of get up and shake hands, and you know, they stroll around, and you go, my gosh, how do they do it? And others are quite happy just to sit in the chair and say, yeah, let's, let's, let's go home. <laughs> uh, so it, it can take a number of weeks to acclimate, and I believe Chris Havill said he really didn't feel normal in himself for a month or more after the fact. You, you are able to have mobility, but to feel you know, gravitational forces normally again, I think Chris said it was about a month. Hmm. So what is touchdown like? Is it touch? Is it hit? What, uh, what, is, yeah, it, what is impact like? Um, you're under, three, under parachute canopy, so you're drifting down, and if you didn't fire any retro rockets on braking, you would hit the ground at sort of like 10, 15 kilometers an hour. So, you know, it would be a bit of a jolt. The Soyuz is designed to literally, a second before impact, to fire its uh, retro thrusters, and it cushions the landing. So if you're ever watching it all the way down, you see this huge plume of dust and soil uh, envelop the capsule 
just as it's touching down. Well, that's not just because it's a dry field. It's because there has been this very vigorous retro thrust to bring it down to literally a few kilometers an hour on impact. So, again, from the astronauts, yeah, it's a bump. You're aware of it. Uh, You know, if you were asleep, which they weren't, uh, you know, you would be jolted awake and so on. But it's probably no more than you jumping off your desk. Hmm. So that has changed from the Apollo missions when they used to splash down. That's correct. The splashdown was at, at comparable speeds, as in a, you know, 10 to 15 kilometers an hour. Uh, there, there's a honeycomb wafer-type structure beneath the capsule, which as it strikes the ground or the water, it, it sort of collapses. So you absorb some of that impact in the Apollo days through basically just you know, deforming metal to, to absorb that energy and have material just crunch underneath you. Uh, that's in contrast to the Soyuz, which has always had this retro thrust designed to just fire a moment before impact to, to bring you down. So there have been subtle differences between the two space programs, but uh, you know, everybody is uh, you know, quite comfortable with both processes, and nobody has walked away with issues as a result of landings. How much work duty do those three astronauts have coming down? Are they just along for the ride, or are they doing anything? Uh Generally speaking, you're on autopilot, but um, you have the ability to control the the attitude of the vehicle and obviously firing the retros at the right time for the right length. If the autopilot isn't behaving itself exactly as anticipated, the astronauts are in a position to take control. Once you're deep in the atmosphere, though, no, there's not much you can do. You've got to get through that atmosphere uh, more or less as a result of your orientation dropping out of orbit. So all of the action happens in those moments of firing your uh, retros in orbit. Uh, but, you know, the, the astronauts do have some measure of control if the autopilots don't behave themselves, and they can jump in at a moment's notice. But in large measure, it is handled by an autopilot. Um, are you fully conscious? Are you fully aware? Or are you just kind of delirious at this point because of the, what you're going through? Are, are you still as sharp as a tack? As near as I can gather, every astronaut who is uh, coming down is, is, is anticipating the return to Earth. They're all looking forward to it. So to say that they are sharp, that's a given, but they're actually really looking forward to it. They've been in orbit for you know, four, five, six months, or in the case of the two astronauts uh, a couple of years back, they were in space for a whole year. Yeah. You can bet they were looking forward to getting out of the... the, the uh, often the International Space Station is referred to as a men's locker room. You know, it, it's trapped air, right? Mm, yeah. You can't change it. To be able to get down to the surface of the Earth and even the, the cold air of, of landing, uh, you know, it's something that everybody is looking forward to. So, yes, they are shop and they are ready to come home. Paul Delaney has been with us, professor of astronomy, York University, talking about early yesterday, three astronauts departing the International Space Station and returning safely to Earth. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Cheers. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.